Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. of Neil joining us. This is Randy Ackley. Uh, who am I speaking with? Hi, Randy. This is Greg. Hi, Greg. Um, are we live on the show now? Um, I believe so. <laughs> well, okay. So I think, uh, uh, I think the boss in your cart are all with it. <laughs> very good. <laughs> well, first of all, I, uh, thanks, Greg, and, and uh, thanks very much, Neil, for the opportunity uh, to join today's show, and I'm looking forward to Neil joining us. Um, all right, I'm going to mute myself out, and you have at it. All right, thanks very much. Uh, let me just say uh, uh, I was very excited by the response that's come up online and uh, the number of people that have made comments and uh, have been sharing the fact that today's show is going, and also my original blog um, uh, that was uh, listed on foreclosurefraud.org. Uh, I was really pleased to see so many people responded so effectively uh, to uh, the information I posted. Let me just say that uh, without Neil here, I, I, I think that the what I will just do is start talking about what it means to be in foreclosure today in the United States. Um, and it's not what we're, we were used to, uh, say, five or 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, you know, back in our, I keep referring to our grandparents' day, the, when somebody bought a house, the purchase. Hello? Randy? Casting love. Let's 
Still Having Problems, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show has value to you, if the blog and our other activities have value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. We are improving and maintaining our websites despite the technological uh, issues of today. Uh, Sorry for our dust. I think we've made some really good improvements in the services and in automation of the uh, appointments for consultations and in other respects. We are essentially done with the first phase, and we're moving into the second phase. And that $99 program is a group consult for small groups of people, um, and the slots fill up pretty quickly. Uh, We have up to 10 people on the conference call, uh, which which lasts 90 minutes, the minimum Uh, We will be on as one hour uh, if it ever happens that there's a small number of people, but that doesn't seem to be likely. Um, You can ask questions and listen to others ask questions. You can get answers, and you can listen to other people get answers. Go to the Living Lies blog, click on it, check it out, schedule yourself in one of these group consults. You're reminded that in such a conversation, you're not getting specific legal advice because I won't know your whole case. But I will know enough because you will be filling out our registration form, and you must know that you're waiving attorney-client privilege if it applies because other people are on the line. And if you're looking for active assistance in litigation, modification, mediation, rescission, settlement, or whatever, then call our numbers and schedule a consult, a review, and report, or both. We provide your attorney and you with the latest information on what is happening and what we think is getting traction, as well as the bare-bone facts on the origination, acquisition, and enforcement of each loan submitted to us. And let me remind my listeners again that nothing stops a foreclosure except a court order. No letter, pleading, or anything else will stop the foreclosure from proceeding or stop the forced sale of the property. The reason I keep repeating this is that people are getting calls or flyers in the mail that promise that they can stop the foreclosure. And in most cases, those are not attorneys Those are people who are misrepresenting what they can do. There's a lot of those out there, and so I remind you always that nothing stops a foreclosure except a court order. In bankruptcy, the order is automatically issued normally as soon as the bankruptcy is filed. 
So back to Randy Ackley, who I hope is on the line here. I think he is from uh, my switchboard here. Uh, he's an attorney in West Palm Beach, uh, Florida, and he worked with Tom Ice, as I said, who uh, I can't say that he would get better training anywhere else uh, in connection with uh, foreclosure defense. Randy, thanks for appearing on our show. Okay, we're still having problems. Randy? Yes, sir. All right. I have now mastered whatever the problem was. Uh, Randy, welcome to the to the show. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. So I'm really pleased to be you here. You have a very unusual background, and I'd like to uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you obviously have uh, uh, been around for a while and seen a lot that most people have not seen. We, of course, uh, in our little corner, believe that foreclosures has been a virtual holocaust. You've seen uh, real damage to real people and real circumstances on the ground that are horrific from what I gather. Would you tell us a little bit about how you progressed and how you ended up in foreclosure defense? I'd, I'd be happy to. Um, and, and, and first of all, if I can, thank you very much for having me on the show today, Neil. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, the, I think the thing for me is I'm not sure uh, that the damages we're seeing in the foreclosure uh, uh, catastrophe for the families involved are all that different from the damages that are uh, incurred in, in natural and man-made disasters that are uh, more destructive. Um, and, and by that, I mean that uh, every day now I'm meeting with people and talking with people who uh, many of them, in, in fact, are retirees uh, who, who are past the ability to be able to go back to work, um, who are disabled and unable to find uh, alternate uh, income, who are being forced out of homes that they were counting on living in until, you know, through, through the rest of their lives. Um, in the disasters I've worked, and I've been really privileged to work with talented and committed people worldwide, um, I've seen horrible, horrible circumstances, of course. Um, I've seen armed conflict in, in, in Kosovo and the consequences of that armed conflict. I've seen uh, the entire villages um, leveled in the tsunami in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, of course, I've seen the unbelievable devastation in Haiti uh, caused by the earthquake there. Um, and Yes, there is a difference. I, I'm not saying that it's, it's the same thing. Um, certainly, when you've lost the loved ones and you've lost uh, whole villages, uh, the impact is horrendous and very personal. But in truth, um, for many of my clients, many of the people I speak to, um, the impact of the cavalier fashion uh, with which the lending industry has treated mortgages and, uh, and loans and the fact that they're forcing people out of their homes um, 
and like I say, in many cases, without the ability to find alternative housing, um, is leaving people homeless and leaving people uh, in desperate straits. Um, and the reality is that this disaster, the, the one difference, which is one of the things I tried to highlight in the blog that I posted, the, the one, one of the significant differences between this disaster and the, the, the devastation caused by Hurricane Andrew and Katrina and the earthquake in Northridge uh, in California is that we can fight back. Um, and you don't have to just sit back and say, well, you know, now I just need to, to pick myself up and, and move forward. Uh, there is a different kind of resiliency available here where you can fight back. And in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases you can prevail. And the reason that you can prevail is that the way that the lending industry has handled these mortgages, uh, uh, and in particular the, the paperwork, the, the, the notes and the mortgages and the assignments of mortgage, uh, has, has been so cavalier that they have totally lost the chain of title in many cases. And, and this comes to the point, I think, of the, the subject that, that you, know, you, you lifted up in your, in your blog, the illusion of standing. Um, one of the strongest defenses we have in Florida, and I'm sure it's not unique to Florida, is that oftentimes the lenders are suing uh, and they just don't have the right to sue. So what is, uh, how does that work? Well, in order to sue on a foreclosure in Florida and force uh, the court to, to, to give the, the plaintiff the right to sell the house uh, in the judicial sale on the auction block effectively, you have to have the contract, and the contract is the promissory note and the mortgage. Where, the, where they have uh, dropped the ball is they have failed to, to properly record and manage the handling of those original promissory notes. Um, what's a little bit disappointing is that in some courts, and, and one of, the, one of the, the district courts of appeal in Florida has actually now it used to be one of the leaders in forcing plaintiffs to prove that they had standing, uh, and they were really strong about it. But now in, in a recent case, the, the Ortiz case, they've actually said that, well, you know, if you've got a photocopy of a promissory note attached to your complaint, and it's endorsed to the, the plaintiff or it's endorsed in blank, you know, that's a, that's a rebuttable presumption. It's enough to get past an involuntary, a motion for involuntary dismissal. Um, because, you know, unless they've got some evidence showing that you didn't have it, that, that creates a presumption. Uh, that you had the promissory note. But my problem with that opinion is that doesn't acknowledge the reality today. In today's world, I can send a copy of a document anywhere in the world to as many people as I want. So having a photocopy of a, a, a promissory note that's endorsed in blank doesn't in any way reflect whether or not I actually had the original note. Um, and so now the, the, the plaintiff's can in, in that district, at least in the fourth district, can attach photocopies of an, a blank endorsed note and say, oh, we had the original, and that's enough. What defendants are going to be able to, uh, to, to uh, produce evidence and to contradict uh, that photocopy? The, the, the defendants, the borrowers, haven't been involved in the process at all. It's, it's the plaintiffs who have been uh, passing documents by email or, or, or or uh, 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 photocopies back and forth, and the defense, the defendants haven't had any right or ability to get involved with that. 
I'm sorry, Neil, did, did you? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, I agree with everything you just said, and I think that your background is particularly interesting uh, uh, in, in terms of your ability to stand up and fight and uh, uh, see what's wrong. Um, one of the things uh, that I have come to as uh, in my role as an expert witness on the securitization of debt is that the reason for these fabricated copied notes is frankly that uh, uh, number one as per the uh, uh, study done some eight years ago by uh, uh, Catherine Ann Porter when she was at the University of Iowa, that 40% uh, at a minimum uh, of the notes were intentionally destroyed, which is an interesting thing until you start thinking about why they would have been intentionally destroyed because those notes are considered from an accounting point to be cash equivalents, and why would you put cash through a shredder? So I went further on that and determined that the reason that they were doing what they were doing and, tr and trying to rely on presumptions, as you pointed out, rebuttable presumptions, rather than saying, here's the money trail, is that if they had revealed the money trail, they would have re revealed a lot of illegal actions, um, one of which included the fact that the uh, origination of the loan was done using funds from a far-off source um, that did not know their funds were being used in that way. And so the money trail that's supposed to lead up from the origination to the point where some trust claims that it owns the loan, the money trail is absent. So they just create these documents and sometimes forge them, uh, robo-sign and all kinds of things, um, and fight like hell in discovery to prevent the um, uh, the homeowner as a defendant in a judicial state or the plaintiff in a non-judicial state. They fight to prevent the homeowner from tracking the money trail and seeing whether it parallels the paper trail. And the reason for that is that the money trail does not and cannot parallel the paper trail because none of those transactions actually happened. So my question for you, since you've got considerable experience and research done here, is what do you think should be done in the discovery phase of litigation where a homeowner is attempting to save their home from what I call a pretender lender. It's a party that has no money in the deal and is just 
standing in for the investment bank that created this disaster? Uh, that's a great question. And what's very interesting uh, is that there are very different uh, strategies now by active foreclosure defending attorneys in Florida. Uh, some have basically said the discovery is not relevant because the courts have been so willing to to allow in evidence. And in some circuits, I understand this perspective, uh, ignoring the rules of evidence. I mean, one of the issues that you and I face, all of us face moving forward is the lenience that's being given to to banks um, with regard to the, the fundamental rules of evidence. I mean, the amazing thing now is in foreclosure defense in Florida and many districts, the, the banks need to have a witness say, well, yeah, we verified the veracity of these documents and they come in. That would never, I mean, I, I, that would, it would be so hard to believe that would happen in other kinds of lawsuits. So what kind you of know, discovery should we? Just to piggyback ahead, on that. Um, I have toyed with the idea <clears throat> of coming up with some strategy where the homeowner comes in and has a witness testify as a representative of the homeowner and see whether or not the court will let <laughs> from the homeowner use logic that they're letting evidence in for the plaintiff who is not a creditor and doesn't own the loan. Um, I, I don't have a good way of doing that yet, but I think it would be very interesting, and I wonder what would happen if a case like that moved up to appeal while the court was attempting, like in the decision you just referred to in the Ortiz case, where, you know, they're saying, yeah, a copy is enough, and it raises a presumption that now shifts the burden of proof to the homeowner on a transaction that the homeowner really knows nothing about and the information for which is in the sole care, custody, and control of parties who are not even in the courtroom. Right. Absolutely. So, I, I have a hard time believing the appellate court would give the borrowers the same, the defendants the same level of support they're providing the plaintiffs in these cases. Yeah, I have the same hard time. Uh, <laughs> and by the way... Uh, we have started uh, to extend the radio program from 30 minutes to 45 minutes. So uh, we've got another 22 minutes to go here. Great. Um, but if I could just so, go back to your, your point about discovery. Yes. I, I do think I'm, I'm actually of a mind that discovery is relevant and you can find uh, key information during the discovery process, especially looking uh, we're really struggling. Many of us are now really struggling to get at this this boarding process issue. Um, they really, they really, uh, the case that comes to mind as probably the key case in the boarding process is the Callaway case. Uh, again, out of the fourth DCA, where they 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 basically said, you know, as long as you say that if you can show that you 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 
validated the prior servicer's documents so that they can come in. Well, also in the Callaway case, however, is a wonderful position that they can't have robo-witnesses or robo-testifiers. And, I, and Tom, Tom Ice deserves credit for having, having coined that, that concept. But the, the thing about the Callaway case is that we can do discovery now, and if, if, if we can show that they actually don't have a blame process, which I believe is probably the case in the vast majority of the servicers' uh, cases, um, they, they have these, 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 these magic words now or the, that are equivalent to the business records exception where they just spout these magic words and they think that that should be enough for the judge to say, okay, these records come in. Things that suggest that they have validated the records, validated that the information in the records they got from the prior servicer were, 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 were accurate. But what they're actually doing is just validating that the numbers that are reflected in their records are the same numbers that are reflected in the prior servicer's records. And I don't believe the discovery is going to show that they've actually gone back to, 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 to validate the numbers that the prior servicer had. And that's where I think we can, we can get them. The uh, paragraph, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's, it's hearsay on hearsay on hearsay. When I've been given the opportunity, when I've been given the opportunity, which is rare, to thoroughly cross-examine the witness that they put on from the servicer, um, I have been able to uh, break down that testimony. And right. uh, sometimes it gets real simple where he's the, the witness is obviously just giving voice to a piece of paper in front of him, which we have plenty of case law that says that's not business records. You've got to establish personal knowledge of how these were Correct. created and all that. But when I approach the witness and ask him questions about the codes that are used and the numbers that are on the page and all that, he has no idea. Right. So, Often that's the case. And I ask, when I ask a question like, you know, have you seen all the records, you know, pertaining to this loan? Oh, yes, is always the answer. And I go, okay, well, um, you're a corporate representative of the servicer, right? Right. And the servicer performs uh, various duties, right? Yes. And one of those duties is to collect money, right? Yes, and so, and then the servicer is pays the creditor, right? And suddenly the witness freezes up and says, "Well, I don't know anything about that." So, <laughs> so that's happened several times, and and you can drill down even further. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there was one witness some time ago that became emotionally distraught uh, uh, with my But I think that's, that, that trial skills and cross-examination are a real key here to keeping the interest of the judge and to getting the judge to focus on the issues that we're trying to bring forward even though we were unfairly burdened w with proving elements of a, of a case that 
frankly, if somebody claimed to be the lender or creditor, they needed to prove. And in today's, my opinion, and I'd like your take on this, is that there is no reasonable basis on which to grant the plaintiff uh, uh, the, the benefit of presumptions. Presumptions uh, are meant to be a shortcut for what everybody knows is already the truth. The, if you look in, at the case and the statute regarding <clears throat> presumptions, you see that presumptions hold unless, and this is the part that everybody did, unless there are circumstances which lead one to believe that the documents in question are not necessarily uh, credible, and neither is the witness. <laughs> Given the fact that we just had Aquin with 17,000 uh, uh, foreclosures stopped, um, and 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 the dozens of settlements by the um, underwriting banks, the investment banks, um, and the servicers who are still not in compliance with the terms of the settlement, and who engaged in outright fraud by fabricating documents and uh, pretending to own loans that they didn't own, they were only servicers, etc. It seems to me there's enough information in the public domain that these presumptions should not be used at all. And that I, I, whatever facts the plaintiff in a judicial state wants to uh, allege, they can allege it but they have to prove it. Too many times I've seen a judge take that presumption from the very beginning of the pleading and say that it's already established that this party owns the loan and they have a right to enforce and all that just because of the pleadings and the, and the attachments. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on the use of those presumptions and whether it's right back. I absolutely do. In fact, I couldn't agree more. I, I, from your lips to God's ears, Neil. Here's the problem, and it's not just the presumptions of the of the, of the allegations and the pleadings, but it also speaks directly to the business records exception to the rule against the admission of hearsay, and it's the exact same issue. Think about it. The whole basis the courts allowing business records to come in, even though they're hearsay, is that there's an underlying assumption or an underlying presumption that there's a circumstance of trustworthiness related to those business records. But the plaintiffs in these cases, the servicers, the banks, the trust companies, the mortgage companies, have again and again and again agreed to consent judgments, consent decrees, the national settlement, uh, mortgage settlement, all of which were based on the fact that they were falsifying documents. They were creating affidavits that were false. They were uh, no, improperly notarizing documents. Again and again and again, the circumstances underlying these 
records, the business records created by these plaintiffs are not being created in circumstances of trustworthiness. And I think it speaks directly to your point. Um, there should be no, no presumptions allowed to the plaintiffs in foreclosure today because it's frankly, not, and not to everyone, but to the many of them. So it, it, is a, it is a situation where they are akin to a criminal syndicate. I don't know how else you explain the creation of MERS to get around uh, the recording of the, the, the documents and the paying of the taxes. I don't know how else you explain the, the mills where they had people stamping endorsements with, with, with signatures on them. Um, we have de- depositions where the, the endorsement and the, on the note, and, and it's important for people in the audience understand that an endorsement on a a promissory note is just like an endorsement on the back of a check. It's a negotiable instrument. Imagine if somebody took your signature and started stamping your checks and passing them around saying, we can enforce these now. That's what they're trying. That's what they are doing. It's untenable, but the courts are allowing them to do it. And it's because they're giving a presumption that the circumstances are trustworthy. Um, And it's, it's unbelievable, but I only wish the judges would, would understand. This is not our grandfather's era. You know, this is not back then. This is now. When, when the banks and the servicers have been shown again and again and again to be willing to do whatever they can to create a, 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 a circumstance in a trial in, in, in Florida, in a judicial state, that will allow them to take the property. And, and you and I both know that many of the defendants in these cases were either misled into circumstances that led to the foreclosure to, to falling behind because they were told they would be given a, a modified loan that would allow them to get out from under an untenable uh, loan uh, because of the mortgage crisis or uh, they bought a house that had been improperly inflated in its value because the, the banks uh, and the, the lenders were were able to get appraisals that were uh, unreasonable in the market that were, were uh, 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 appropriate at the time. I mean, again and again and again, we see where it was the industry that set up everybody and we're all paying for it now and they're getting the benefit of the doubt uh, again and again and again in the courts. But that's not to say that we can't win. In fact, the attorneys I know that are fighting are winning 50% and more of their cases. That's a great ratio uh, of wins uh, in, in court. And it's, so it's definitely worth pursuing to defend yourself and defend your foreclosure. Uh, Neil, I have to tell you, in the last two days, since you posted that I'd be on the show today, I've received four phone calls um, from across the country, uh, one in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, one from Jacksonville, Florida, one from Nebraska, uh, another from California, and they're asking for lawyers. They're asking if I can help them. And I, of course, I'm a Florida attorney. My, my expertise is focused on Florida. But I think it's very important for folks who are considering whether to defend themselves in foreclosure to try to find lawyers who are willing to fight in trial. Absolutely, there are a number of us in Florida that are willing to fight. That doesn't mean that settlement is out of the question. In fact, one of the things that can be achieved during the defense of a foreclosure is you, you, have, a, you have the leverage to work, to work with the plaintiff to reach a reasonable settlement that you can live with as, as a borrower. Um, and those settlements can include loan mods or alternatives to foreclosure that will avoid the, the heavy impact of a foreclosure. And it's worth fighting. 
I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, and I, I want to suggest to you uh, uh, what I've suggested to other attorneys, and I've uh, had some success in, in getting attorneys to do this. Um, there, if you get a call from Nebraska, obviously, you, uh, unless you want to fly out there and represent them pro hoc vice, you're not going to be able to even give them a legal opinion. Uh, you won't be able to give them a legal opinion, much less represent them. But that's absolutely if they, true. If they get to an attorney who is licensed in Nebraska, you could provide litigation support where you help in the preparation of pleadings and motions and memorandums, and you even talk to the lawyer to prep him for or her for hearings. And the if the client is willing to pay for uh, for both, it's not really a double charge because the work that would need to be done anyway is done by the uh, person doing the litigation support on behalf of the attorney on the ground there who has to follow through with it. Um, so um, I'm trying I have to, to admit get, I hadn't done that. I have not done that. That's a great idea. I like it. I, I think uh, the more we get lawyers to work with each other as opposed to against each other, which is somewhat difficult because trial lawyers, myself included, have egos that have to be dealt with. and um, But I am finding more and more lawyers open to the possibility of receiving my help or the, or the help of other attorneys like yourself uh, who could give them the same good advice and information as, as I would. Uh, at least I hope that what I give is good advice and information. So... Um, uh, think about that, if you will. Um, uh, and back to your point about the fabrication of documents. Just this week I was dealing with a document that was notarized a month before it was signed. <laughs> That's fascinating. And you just have to ask yourself, how can that possibly happen? Which which basically means, and I think you were making this point before, but I'll clarify it, that any lawyer and any homeowner who's looking to defend themselves needs to read these documents that are that that these pretender lenders are attempting to use and really look at every word and every mark on the page because it may tell a story of fabrication, forgery, robo-signing, um, and, you know, just basically presenting things as though they were evidence when, in fact, they are worse than not being worth the paper they are written on. And that, that little example that I gave you is very common because... You have these robo notaries who sometimes they're not even present. Their stamp is used, and you know you can run through a thousand of them in one day. And if you check, you'll see 
in many cases, different signatures from the same notary, or as I have also found in about 20% of the cases, notarization from a notary who wasn't a notary at the time. If you check the stamp, you'll see when their commission expired, and if you check the state, you'll find out when it began, and if you ask the Secretary of State, you'll find out that at the time the document was supposedly notarized, this person was not a notary. So a little bit of one of the benefits of having a little longer show is I'm able to give more of those tidbits at. Uh, in the in the closing minutes here, Randy, um, why don't you speak a little bit about what you think is likely to be the future of foreclosure defense and what might get traction? Uh, that's a great question because you know, as we see the case law come down, it's getting tighter and tighter and more difficult and more difficult. But again, it's not impossible, and there are new new strategies coming out. Uh, some friends and I are considering uh, the viability of unconscionability arguments. The beauty of the unconscionability argument is that if we're able to prove to the court that for legal reasons, not just you know, discretionary reasons, but for legal reasons, the contract entered into was unconscionable, either because it was an adhesion contract or that it uh, legally uh, was a uh, uh, an adhesion contract that, uh, and I believe the elements are present in, in most of these cases, then it's not even just a matter of the, if we're able to succeed at that, it's not just a matter of winning at trial, but actually if we're able to prove to the court that the contracts were unconscionable, it becomes a void, not voidable, but a void judgment. And the court doesn't even have jurisdiction to, to find for the plaintiff if it's, a, if it's a void judgment or if it's an unconscionable contract. That's one thing. Uh, another thing we're hearing a lot about these days is rescission. Um, and I actually, uh, you know, a month ago, two months ago, I, I, I was very, very leery of, of rescission. I'm still leery of it, but I think I may have found ways for it to start working. And I may actually have a case now that the, the clients have the necessary elements to legitimately argue rescission. Um, I also think that we're, we still haven't seen, and this is actually tragic, uh, we still haven't seen the end of this impact of these inappropriate mortgages and the manipulation of the market. A lot of, there's been rumors again and again that a lot of the plaintiffs are holding back waiting for the Bartram decision. Um, many of us are depressed by the new new opinion that came out on Bouvet. Um, and for those that don't know, the Bouvet case on the Third District uh, Court of Appeals in, in Florida, which is the Court of Appeals that applies for Miami, Dade, and uh, Monroe counties. The Randy, you got a few seconds. <laughs> well, it's just that basically they've eradicated, if for all intents and purposes, statute of limitations. And, in foreclosure cases. It's very easy for the banks to avoid statute of limitations now. Uh, that's very depressing. So we're hoping that the Bartram case out of the Supreme Court will fix that. Okay. Well, Randy Ackley, I want to thank you for appearing on the show. I think that you have given us a lot of information and things to think about. I agree that attacking the initial contract is a very good idea. 
table-funded loans, for example, are considered predatory per se, which means in a court of equity, it means per se you can't have clean hands, which I think is something that has not been used well enough. I thank everybody for joining us and my staff for setting this up, and we'll see you next week, same time. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.